Welcome. Again, my name is Trisha D. And um, today is Wednesday, the 15th of November. And Don C will be our speaker today. Don uh, originally grew up in the mountains of West Virginia and now lives in Connecticut in the US. Um, he attended his first meeting January 26, 1982 in the state of North Carolina. Don, it's Thank now you, your Trisha. floor. How did you know all that? I didn't tell you that. <laughs> you must have heard me someplace before. Anyway, my name is Don Compulsive Eater and uh, food addict from Connecticut, as was said. Um, uh, it's a couple of hours north of New York City, for those of you who, who don't know the U.S. very well. Let me say I'm not here to promote. I'm not here to teach. I'm not here to impress. I'm here to just share what I've learned in OA. That's all really I have to give. I came 41 years ago, have never left. That makes me an old timer. You know, it's easy to become an old timer. You just keep going to meetings and don't die. You instantly become an old timer. Um, this past June was 39 years of abstinence for me, maintaining a little bit under a 200 pound weight loss now for about 35 years. These 41 years have included many of life's challenges, uh, divorce, death, disease, disappointment, a lot of Ds, right? Well, and now at 82, about to be 83 in two weeks, I have another D and it's called disability, disability and chronic pain from failed back surgery uh, a few years ago. It's gotten me down now and I can no longer get around. So I'll talk a little bit about that just to start out because that's the number one challenge that I have today. So OA saved my life. Literally, I came uh, 30 days, approximately 30 days after standing on a bridge over the Hudson River in New York at 3 a.m. in the morning. I had written all the notes. I had done all the finalizing stuff, was ready to go. Uh, parked my car on the at the uh, side of the bridge, at the tip of the bridge, and walked into the onto the bridge, climbed up. Did not jump, obviously, or I wouldn't be here. 30 days later, by accident, I came into an OA meeting. So OA, when I say OA saved my life, uh, I mean literally it saved my life because that suicidal stuff went on for a long time before I came. And it went on probably for at least that first year when I, after I came to the program, even though I was working the program and trying hard, it was, it was still there. So it saved my life. And then it showed me how through the 12 steps, to build a whole new life. So I came at 41. I've been here at 41. I'm 82. So exactly half of my life pre-OA and then the other half post-OA. And all of the best memories are, of course, from this last this last half. Re-educating my mind on how to look at life, how to deal with life, and the meaning of life was what this program was all about for me. My ideas and beliefs coming out of my backwoods family uh, and culture were pretty distorted. I, of course, had no idea about that. Many were simply self-destructive, uh, dysfunctional. I had no idea that compulsive eating for me was a symptom of not knowing how to cope with life. Food was never my problem, even at close to 400 pounds, really. It was the symptom of what was between my ears. Yes, I abused food, used it for emotional reasons, and then got addicted to the damn stuff. 
And, you know, so I call myself a compulsive eater and a food addict. And you'll hear a little bit more about that um, later. This is a 12-step program. The 12 steps are an emotional and spiritual change program for me. The only step that mentions food is the first step. The rest of the steps taught me how to cope with life and find the power to get free and stay free from the prison of the compulsive overeating disease. So from 10,000 feet, it's just a two-step program, right? One is put down the food, two is change in order to get the power to keep it down. That's it. That's the net of the whole program. If I don't change who I am and how I think and how I deal with life, I'm just going to go in and out of relapse forever and ever and ever and ever and be treating the program as a diet program, and it's not. So I, I like to focus on the uh, recovery process when I talk um, rather than uh, do a food log. Um, everybody here has heard a thousand food logs. you got your own food log. So I'm going to skip a lot of the what I was like stuff and just talk about how I found freedom, freedom from the disease through the steps and the tools. And now hold on to that freedom. You can you can read more of what I was like stuff in my uh, in my story in the book that was mentioned before, the OA3 book. Uh, my story is in there. It's called Freedom Isn't Free, uh, third edition of the Old Readers Anonymous book. You'll understand my focus on freedom by the time I, I finish today. Freedom is work. This is not an easy program. It's a work program. That's my experience. Some higher power doesn't magically change me. It gives me the courage to take the actions that change me. I'll say that again. It gives me the courage to take the actions that change me. So I divide my life into four phases, roughly. The first was my 41 years pre-program. The second was the 37 fantastic years that followed coming to OA, 41 years, actually. And that brought me to, no, the, the, the 37 years, let's put it that way. That's when the, the surgery happened, 37 uh, years after I came in. That brought me to phase three about four years ago. And I'm now trying very hard to stay in phase four. So 37 years, then all kinds of back problems and failed surgery. So the last four years have been fighting it. And now here in this last year, I'm getting into what I call phase four. The essence of phase three was that despite many hospitals, doctors and pain clinics, seven actually, I was left with unfixable chronic pain and disability that makes me look like a bent over old man. Actually, I am a bent over old man, right? If you saw me, that's what it is. What this bent over old man needed to do in phase three was and still do these days is work his program even harder than I did in those early years. And I worked it hard because, as I said, I was at a very low bottom. So, oh, I saved my life and it gave me a life. It's still showing me how to have a, a loving and useful life, no matter the physical challenges that I have today. My life is still based upon the words of Dr. Bob, love and service. Isn't that what it all is all about? He said love and service and all the various implications of those words. When this pain and disability began to blossom a few years ago after the effects of failed back surgery began to overtake me, I was filled with anger and sadness, losing all I had lost in grief about the active life I had lost and full of fear about becoming a burden to my spouse who is younger than I am. That was the phase three period. Now in phase four, 
It's about acceptance and dealing with reality. I keep hearing from my higher power, who I argue with all the time, and guess who always wins? I keep hearing from that higher power, um, what is, is, deal with it, no whining, no whining. So disability is not God's will for me. Bad stuff happens to people. This is the world that we live in. Bad stuff happens. That's the human condition. God's will is that I do all I can with what I have. And that's expressed on a plaque behind me. You can't, I'm sure you can't read it from where you are. But the plaque on the shelf says, life is not about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. And that's what I've been doing for this past year, really learning to dance in the rain. It's apparent that God still has more for me to do. You know, I've still got a brain. I've still got this wonderful thing called Zoom. I can't get out there and do all those retreats that I've done in the past over the, I've done 40 re weekend step study retreats over the years and a lot of other stuff. But I can't do that anymore, but I can sit here and I can talk on this on Zoom. So uh, I'll do the best I can uh, with what I have. Now, let me give you some, some program. I started my program in a rehab in 1982. I'd never heard of Overeaters Anonymous. I was told there were eight things that I would need that would need to happen for me to find sustained recovery. So it was a generalization about this is what you're going to need to do. And I thought, of course, the person telling me was totally full of crap. But this is what he, he said. He said, OK, eight things. Abstinence. I will need to abstain from certain foods and food behaviors like an alcoholic abstains from alcohol. It's impossible, I was told, to get over this addiction without abstaining totally from those foods. The only way to get overeating is to stop overeating. And I thought, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. But I kept going. The second thing was hope. A gathering of hope and expectation of better things to come. And I'll talk about this in a few minutes when I talk about the steps. Where would I get that hope? Well, they told me to listen carefully to people sharing in the meetings what they were like and what they're like now. My hope would come from seeing others before me that had done this. And it worked out that way. Courage. I had to have the courage to let go of my ideas and try another set of ideas. I thought, what the heck is wrong with my ideas? You know, they said, you're self-centered. And I said, no, 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 I cannot be self-centered. That's, again, the dumbest thing I've ever heard. They said, did you come here to argue or did you come here to get well? And I thought it was a trick question. It pissed me off. But I said, oh, OK, what do I do? What do I do? So the courage to let go of my my ideas and try another set of ideas. That's called surrender. So if surrender for me was not giving up. It was deciding to cooperate with a whole new set of ideas that I didn't make up. Fourth thing was honesty. I had to get totally honest with myself about everything in me and around me. And of course, at 41, I had never been totally honest with another person in my entire life. I'd spent my life on stage pretending to be something I was not. The fifth thing was restructure my priorities. What did they mean? First things first, they said. What does that mean? I said, they said staying absent was the most important thing in my life. I had to do that. Make it the most important thing in my life, no matter what. Without it, without abstinence, I would never be able to do the emotional and the spiritual uh, changes that needed to be dealt with. I couldn't, I, you know, a drunk cannot 
effectively look at himself or herself. They can't reflect on themselves where the damn. Six was learn to discriminate. That meant avoiding places, things, and people who were not good for me. And I that one I understood, and that one I pretty much implemented pretty quickly. Seven was take actions. I don't get well by osmosis. I don't get well by just going to meetings and listening to people. That does nothing, absolutely nothing. I don't get well by going to meetings any more than I become a parent by going to parent-teacher meetings, you know, back when my kids were, were small. I had to work the steps and use all the tools. And the last thing was I had to accept that I fixed my problems by changing myself, not others. And of course, again, I thought that was dumb because my whole problem was my wife and my spouse and my parents and all those people. It was all of them, all their fault. I was this poor victim. Look what they did to me. No, I was told that's not true. I didn't understand the addiction nonsense either. I didn't believe it. How could you be a food addict? How could you be addicted to some kind of food substance? But, you know, over time, much, much later, it began to creep up on me. Walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, looks like a duck. I must be a duck. Damn, I am a freaking addict. Finally got to it, you know. And that's where my good abstinence really started when I said, okay, they're right. And for me, it's sugars and refined carbohydrates. I'm addicted to those, same as alcohol, same as drugs. So now let me summarize what I did to get well and stay well. I'm sharing my experience only here. Uh, there's no one right way to do the steps except to take them in order. That's about the only thing I'd say for sure. They build on each other. The big book talks about building an arch uh, through which we pass to freedom. So for me, all of the steps, if you look carefully at them, ultimately, they're all about ego reduction. Remember, I said I wasn't self-centered, just maybe an ego. That's what it was all about, letting go of the self-centeredness, reducing that ego. So as I said, there's no one right way to do this. Uh, so I'm not selling anything. Your process is up to you. So my first 10 years, of course, coming in in 82, my first 10 years were all big book in AA 12 and 12 because there was nothing else, right? Now, these last, all these last years, I used the big book in both 12 and 12s and any other information out there that I can, that's useful for me. Um, I use, I, I use all three books. I do, I still doing step studies, 15 week step studies starting up in a couple of weeks. And I still use all, all three books there. So step one, I put down the food. I had to detox from food so I could objectively examine my life since food was the, was the symptom, not the ultimate problem. I accepted I had an incurable but arrestable disease. Incurable but arrestable disease over which willpower was useless and that I could never, ever treat food like a normal eater, ever. I wanted to argue with that, but I said, okay, I'll act as if. And I'm still acting as if 41 years later, right? I can't treat food like a normal eater. That's just the way it is. So I argued. I thought, how could anyone be addicted to food, as I, as I said? Turns out it wasn't all foods. It was just certain foods uh, and overeating itself. So it was the overeating, eat, eat, eat. And then there were certain foods that I would eat the same one over and over and over, like the, the donuts or, the, or any, any of the sugar stuff. Ultimately, I came to accept the reality of the addiction cycle and the doctor's opinion, you know, with the uh, with the mental obsession and the physical compulsion and accept that my brain was, in fact, different from a normal eaters and would always be physiologically different. You know, in Silkworth's time, uh, in the doctor's opinion, it was all conjecture. 
Now, of course, all these years later, the science exists. So we know very clearly that you can be addicted to certain foods as, just as you can to uh, alcohol and, and other things. It's the same brain area that's affected by alcohol, cocaine, nicotine, and amphetamines. Same brain area. So it's very possible. It's the pleasure center, if you want to call it that. One bite or one drink and an irresistible urge for more kicks in. Therefore, the solution is simply don't eat those poison foods. I call them poison foods and just don't eat them. Fine, but where do I get the power to do that? You know, I had many diets in my life, up and down, up and down. So I would get a little power and I would lose weight. And then, of course, I couldn't not start again. And that's what the steps are all about, is helping me to gain that power. The uh, This leads to accepting that the food isn't, in fact, is not the real problem, as I said. Because if I don't pick up the first bite, the compulsion, physiological compulsion, uh, doesn't start. So the question becomes, how do I change the thinking that leads to the feelings? Think of the doctor's opinion now in the addiction cycle. How do I change the thinking that leads to the feelings that leads to the obsession, that leads to the first bite, that leads to the out-of-control behavior? That's the addiction cycle described in the doctor's opinion. And the only way I'm going to get a handle on that is the change, the thinking that leads to the feelings, that leads to the obsession, etc. Remember, I have the obsession because I have this disease. Normal people without the disease don't have the obsession. So that's what the steps and tools are all about, is learning to identify uh, that problem. Of course, I had to detox from the sugars and the refined carbohydrates in order to clear my brain so I could get started on the personality change, right? A drunk, as I said before, cannot really look at himself or herself and get into what, what's going on. Um, normal leaders decide when and, and where to eat as they go along. I can't do that. I can't trust my brain. 41 years later, I'm still an addict. So I plan every day. I still have a plan. I write down in my in my journal what I'm having for breakfast, what I'm having for lunch, what I'm having for dinner. That's part of my morning morning uh, daily disciplines. Um, so I've been doing that for, for 40 years. Step two, from seeing and hearing recovery in the OA rooms, I gained the hope that kept me coming back to meetings. I was an atheist. I didn't care for this God idea that was floated around all over the place. Um, and it was being alluded to here in the in the second step. But in retrospect, I can see the hope that, that powered me forward. You know, hope gives you courage to take the actions. The hope that powered me forward was, in fact, the recovery in the rooms, as I said. So the program and the people in recovery were a power greater than myself. Now, I didn't understand that in the beginning. All I understood was something was going on here, and I liked it, and so I'll stick around. What do I do? You know, it's the open my brain, open my hands, and say, what do I do? Follow directions. You know, when in doubt, follow directions. I still say that from time to time. Um, Step three was simply for me committing to working the program. In other words, the rest of the steps. I signed a contract. So surrender wasn't giving up in the classical sense of the word uh, uh, that we might think of it in a spiritual sense it, and giving everything to God. It was deciding to cooperate. Surrender was not giving up. It was deciding to cooperate with a whole new set of ideas called steps four through twelve. Plus seven tools at that time. Of course, we have nine tools at this time. Uh, I so 
I admitted myself to the metaphorical OA hospital and said, okay, what do I do? I'll do whatever you say. And I was told to work the rest of the steps and use all the tools and trust the process. Trust the process, an important phrase for me. I didn't understand it. They said, you don't have to understand it. Just trust it. Because, by the way, Don, it's, it has worked for thousands and thousands and thousands before you in our program. And, oh, by the way, AA has been around another 30 years, and it has worked for them over and over and over and over. So why don't you just trust the process and, and follow it? So I didn't need to understand it. Just keep going. And then they got into the real action. Steps four, five, six, and seven are where the action is. These are the change steps for me. Uh, this began the personality transformation that would lead ultimately to to my freedom. Identified the identified the uh, the dysfunctional thinking and the attitudes in step four that led me to begin using food as a drug for comfort or escape in the first place. So it was all subconscious. I had no idea that I was using food like a drug. No idea. And then, as I said, it, it eventually became an addiction. So it was all subconscious. In step five, in, I, uh, in talking with a person experienced in recovery, I've more or less validated all the stuff that I'd written down in step four. I came out of five with a good list of my shortcomings. Um, step six and seven were simply for me, identifying with lots of help from sponsors, the antidotes to all the shortcomings, the solutions, the new ways of thinking and dealing with life that would replace the dysfunctional ways. So I needed to become a new me. So my job was to begin practicing these new ways of thinking and acting. Yes, I was asking the higher power to help me, give me the courage to do it, but ultimately it was me that had to work on the changes. I learned that with higher power's help, but I act my way into right thinking, not think my way into right acting. I always thought there was magic. There is no magic. I can act my way into right thinking, but I can sit here and think all day and not think my way into right acting. No magic wand is going to touch me on the head and change me. So I take the action. I let I I let uh, let me give you some several examples of the personality transformations experience. Uh, that the personality of the personality transformations that are referenced in Appendix Two of the Big Book, right? Appendix Two talks about defines spiritual awakening as personality transformation and recovery as personality transformation. And I'll give you some examples of that. So, in case you got lost there, in four and five, I identify the problem, and six and seven, I identify the solutions. Now I ask God to help me start practicing and acting as if I have these solutions. And guess what happens when you practice things? How do you learn to walk? How do you learn to swim? How do you learn to play tennis? How do you learn to play golf? How do you learn to whatever? Practice, practice, practice. And that's the story of my recovery in the program is gradual change to practicing the new behaviors. So some of the, some of the examples. I face and deal with life today rather than playing the victim. I blamed everybody when I came. I, today I learned to take responsibility. No more blaming others, no more blaming circumstances, no more self-pity, no more victim, no more envy or jealousy. I do a gratitude list every single morning to help keep me in the right frame of mind for the day. Every single morning. I don't remember years and years and years and years and years of never doing a gratitude list in the morning, every morning. I need to do that. So I moved from hopelessness to hope 
and from a reactive life to a, a proactive life. Reactive to a proactive. I was just kind of just taking life as it came and fighting it. This program says, no, go for it. Time to live, Don. Time to live and go for what you want to do. Another example, I've moved from thinking self-sufficiency is man's highest goal to being willing to ask for help, to accepting that I, in fact, need help, that no man is an island. That's the thing I heard from my father growing up, one of those wrong ideas that I had. He said, Don, real men don't ask for help, and real men don't show their feelings, and real men don't cry, and all that crap. And, of course, that's nonsense, you know? We need each other. We need each other. That's what the fellowship is all about. Another example, I work hard on staying away from uh, self-centered controlling. What I meant there was I didn't walk around telling people what to do. In my head, though, I was. I was mentally putting expectations on people and situations. I call it my master planning for the world. Everybody, if you would do this and you would do this and you this way and et cetera, et cetera, then everything would be fine. And of course, the problem is none of those people can read my mind, so they don't know what I'm telling them to do, so they don't do it. And that means I walk around all the time frustrated. And of course, that's whose problem is that? Me. It's my problem, right? That's back to the bad thinking. I have to let go of trying to control the world and putting expectations on all of you people here and saying, whatever you do, you do. That's up to you. I can't control anything other than what I do and my choices and my priorities. I do that. I do a written list, by the way, on the serenity prayer every day. Cannot How much? Five left. Oh, wow. It really went fast. I'm going slow. All right. So that's some examples. I gradually let go of the selfishness. I moved from how do I get what I want to how can I be useful? 11-step prayer admonished me to admonishes me to seek to comfort, understand, and love rather than to be comforted. Uh, I gradually let go of the anger and the resentment and moved into acceptance and forgiveness. Uh, I gradually let go of the uh, perfectionism. That's self-sabotaging based on fear. Everything had to be perfect or I was nothing. And of course, that's nonsense. We are human. We make mistakes and we are only as good as we are. Uh, probably the... Uh, most magical thing in those first five years was in step five, the wall began to come down around me. The self-imposed wall to protect myself from being vulnerable came down. That wall started when I in my late teens, and it protected me. Like my father was a stone, well, I became a stone. And so that was there. And that wall coming down made me able to feel again I was able to actually love again and feel that. And even harder, and some of you may know what I'm talking about here, I was once again able to accept love. Love was not something that I could accept for most of my life. Someplace deep inside is that I'm not worthy, etc. So um, I moved from atheism into being able to make a connection with the quiet voice within, which means I'm no longer paralyzed with fear. So I've moved from being a prisoner of all of these emotions and the food to, to freedom. Uh, I know today that I have choices. The world is full of darkness. It's full of light. So I choose to live in the light. Eight and nine were about cleaning up the past. My amends were not that many. I had about a dozen, mostly where we're living amends to my, my spouse and, and my kids. Uh, 
10, 11, and 12 are things that I do every day. I'd hope to get uh, five minutes on a summary on them, but I'm out of time, almost out of time. So I'll just say briefly, every morning I inventory my emotional and spiritual condition, make the necessary adjustments. Notice I said I do it in the morning. The big book, of course, suggests at night. I did it for at night for a few years. It just didn't work very well for me. So I shifted it to morning. So I do a 10-step in the morning and many different kinds of 10-step. Um, I ask myself things like, how am I doing taking responsibility rather than blaming? How am I doing living in gratitude rather than self-pity? How am I doing living in love and tolerance rather than judging and criticizing? How am I doing living in the present rather than the past, et cetera? So I have a long list of stuff that I look at there. Um, um, 11th step, I spend about 30 minutes on every morning, opening prayer, write down my food plan, work plan, and believe it or not, an attitude plan for the day. I do an inventory, as I said. I read books. I have 17 daily reading books on my on my desk there by my reading chair. Of course, two of them are OA, and then the others are many other programs. And I use all those. I also read two or three at, at night before I go to bed. And I write, if I write, I, I read three books this morning, and I wrote two or three sentences on the meaning, to me, of each of those writings. I do a gratitude list, important. Then I say the third, seventh, and 11th step prayers. I often add on at the end of the seventh step some specific, specifically, God help me today to live in, et cetera, et cetera. I finish up with some affirmations and what I call reminders. Uh, I found out a long time ago I can change how I feel by changing the sentences going through my head. Sounds stupid, but it's it's true. And that's what affirmations uh, are all about. I have different kinds. Uh, anchor. I have some anchors, I call them. I am abstinent no matter what. I know God is always with me. I have faith that God will give me the strength to deal with whatever comes. I have several reminders on my little worksheet that I have in front of me, like, don't forget that God doesn't fix things. He gives me the power to take the actions that fix things. Don't forget that if I want something I've never had, I have to do something I've never done. Don't forget that all growth is a step into the darkness. There is no growth without doing things I'm afraid to do. So let me just close by saying, uh, Obviously, I'm here carrying the message, and I do a lot of service over the years. That's the third part of of, uh, of step step twelve. Uh, the second part is step twelve. You know, the first part is spiritual awakening. Second is carrying the message. Third is living by these principles. I could do a whole hour on the principles. I actually have a list of eighty one principles that I live by on my worksheet, right? But that's a whole nother whole nother story. So let me just close by saying. The disease is arrested for me, but I still have it. No magic. There's only slowly developing miracles that happen when I put myself in a position to receive them by trying to live my life according to the principles of the program. That's time, Don. I visualize what it is that I want to be. Then I visualize the action steps that may take me there. Then I start taking the actions. So sometimes they're physical actions. Sometimes they're emotional things. Sometimes they're spiritual as I do more things that nurture my soul and bring me closer to my higher power. So no magic, only actions and faith. And that's where this story comes from. Freedom is not free, right? So it just isn't. That's my experience. We have to work our butts off in order to get it. 
with a higher power's help, of course. So thank you, Rita, wherever you are. I think you might be in Mexico <laughs> for asking me to share myself with you today. Okay, that's it. Wow.